0: This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Glenn Harlan Reynolds, author of The New Encounter Broadside, The Judiciary's Class War. Glenn is the Beauchamp Brogan Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee, and you probably know him best as Instapundit, purveyor of Instapundit.com, and is a contributor to numerous publications such as USA Today and others. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: The premise of the, the judiciary's class war, as I see it, is that there's this front row versus back row kids split that's going on in American society that you write about, and that's manifesting itself in the courts uh, as it, as you view it in a detrimental fashion. Speak a little bit to the front row versus back row kids split.
1: Sure. Well, that's actually a, a characterization from a guy named Chris Arne. He's a former Wall Street guy turned— photographer of the poor and dispossessed. And he divides uh, America basically into the front row kids and the back row kids. And the front row kids are the ones who did well in school. They have professional and managerial type jobs. Uh, They look for their values to uh, academia and to their membership in sort of a global educated professional class. Uh, And the back row kids are uh, the ones who aren't like that. Uh, the people who uh, didn't succeed as well in school, who have jobs that are not professional or managerial, uh, people who look to their values uh, foremost to church and to their community uh, and uh, tend not to move too far away from where they live. As you see it
0: with respect to the courts, is the broader issue negatively impacting the nation the judicial philosophy of the justices or their kind of class background? Or would you say that the two are inextricably intertwined?
1: Oh, I think the two are inextricably intertwined. I mean, look, if you are a back row voter, you can vote for somebody like, say, Scott Walker. He's the governor of Wisconsin. He never graduated from college. Uh, nobody gets to serve, in, in in our world at least, in the judiciary, who doesn't have a, a an actual postgraduate degree, not just a college degree, but a law degree. Uh, and these are not just... A, People with law degrees, uh, these are people with elite law degrees. Everybody on the Supreme Court got their degree from Harvard or Yale, except for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who uh, came in representing that scrappy little Ivy League upstart, Columbia University. So they're going to have and do have the values, the outlook, the philosophy, uh, and the life habits of Ivy League educated people who are very successful and uh, have a decent amount of money. And all the issues they look at get strained through that. Now, sometimes they can overcome that kind of bias, and sometimes they can't, uh, but it's always there. And I think it's not even very much examined because I'm, it's not just a left-right thing. Uh, it's, it's much more pervasive than that.
0: And to that point, I think one of the most critical arguments in your book is this one, and I'll, I'll quote here. You write, if the federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular were solely focused on technical legal questions, the dramatic gap between the backgrounds and class identities of the judiciary and those of Americans in general would be less significant. But since the mid 20th century, the federal courts have become, in essence, our nation's moral umpire when it comes to the pressing social questions of the day. This use of the courts itself reflects a front row approach, removing decisions from the masses and placing them in the hands of of educated elites. Elaborate on that.
1: Well, it's pretty much what it sounds like. Uh, you know, it, the Supreme Court was originally, it was always an important body, but it was not an especially super important body until well into the 20th century uh, when more and more important questions started winding up there uh, and being resolved there rather than in the political branches. And this was partly a desire of the political branches to uh, kick the football to somebody else who didn't have to run for re-election, and also partly a willingness of the court, I think, to, to take on a sort of platonic guardian role uh, and uh, seeing itself sort of specially qualified to decide issues like this. And, and that's, I think, all bound up with the sort of elitism and scientism that uh, mid-century progressivism uh, had. And I think that... Um, we see that in a lot of areas now. It, it's frankly sort of absurd that the Supreme Court decides a lot of the questions that it does, uh, often essentially as a first instance, uh, rather than you know after just saying Congress tried and got it wrong. Uh, and and I think that when it does so, you know, it brings to it the instincts of the elite bar, uh, and the elite bar is a group of people who uh, tend to lean socially left, certainly. Uh, but as I say, it's, it's a matter of manners and mores that go sort of beyond left and right.
0: There's also an element of this, which is a little bit self-serving. You talk about the impact of a case, Goldberg v. Kelly, where essentially the, the lawyers were fighting for a decision putatively about helping those who were on welfare. But in reality, it was sort of a wealth redistribution scheme for lawyers. Speak a little bit about that case.
1: Yeah, so when I was in law school, uh, Goldberg v. Kelly was still held up as like one of the greatest Supreme Court decisions ever, Uh, so much so that it got praised even in my admiralty class. And yes, I mean literally, really, even in my admiralty class. So what happened in Goldberg v. Kelly was it was part of the broader welfare rights movement of the 60s. And previously, if you were on welfare and the caseworker in charge of your case decided that you weren't eligible, uh, you'd be kicked off and you were eligible to come back and appeal and have your benefits reinstated if you could show that you were entitled. Uh, What happened in Goldberg was the Supreme Court said, no, you have an actual constitutional right to have notice and a hearing before they could take away your welfare benefits. Previously, the courts had said welfare benefits are uh, ex gratia, a gratuity, uh, something that's nice if the state gives it to you, but they don't create any entitlement. Uh, Goldberg uh, is, is really where the term entitlement comes from, pretty much. And in Goldberg, the court said, no, you have you have a property right in your welfare benefits. And so the state can't take away this property right without giving you notice and a, a hearing. Uh, well, that sounds great. Uh, and, you know, my professors loved it. And we, you know, more, more due process is always better, right? Well, it is if you're a lawyer, because lawyers get paid to do that stuff. But in a welfare organization, there's basically a fixed pot of money. It's not likely that the taxpayers are going to say, well, we were going to give billion to this welfare program. But now that they're going to have uh, due process hearings, we'll give them an extra billion dollars to cover those. It's pretty likely that the taxpayers uh, aren't going to give them any more. And so what's going to happen is, out of that fixed pot of welfare money, uh, some significant chunk that used to go to poor people who the authorities thought deserved it is now going to go to a mixture of poor people the authorities think don't deserve it, and more importantly, to the lawyers and the social workers and the stenographers and so on, who provide those due process hearings. How do
0: Baker v. Carr and Reynolds v. Sims, two cases that you link, uh, factor into your thesis?
1: Yeah, they do. Uh, First of all, the Reynolds and Reynolds v. Sims is no relation, (laughs) at least as far as I know. Uh, So many states uh, for a long time uh, had their state legislatures, both a lower house and an upper house, apportioned according to state rules. uh, And there were two issues that came before the court there. One, on which the states were clearly wrong, uh, was the refusal of states to actually update their apportionment maps as their own state constitutions required. The uh, second thing that was wrong, according to this, was their failure to make sure that all the districts had equal numbers of people in them so that some districts didn't uh, dilute people's votes relative to others or concentrate people's votes relative to others. Uh, one of the things that means is that states that had an analog to the United States Senate, with geographic districts, were forced to redo those by population. And the effect of that was to take power away from rural areas and give it to concentrated urban areas, which, not surprisingly, are where the front row kid's power is the greatest. And I I frankly think that was not unintentional. Uh, There was sort of a war against rural America in a lot of legal aspects of the uh, 50s and 60s and uh, 70s, and I think this is best understood as part of that.
0: Now, the, uh, an interesting uh, point, and you sort of allude to this in the broadside, is uh, Justice Thomas's perspective on who he chooses to be his clerks and staffers. What, in your view, does it say about Justice Thomas and about your thesis more broadly that the most natural law-oriented judge on the court, on the Supreme Court, advocates for folks essentially from the heartland to be on his staff over ivy leaguers solely
1: well you know it's funny uh first of all uh and i think thomas has said this too and i know scalia has made uh, this point uh that um the supreme court itself of course doesn't represent the heartland its people are mostly from the coast and they're elite educated it's very, it's very much the the front row kids argument really uh it is definitely made worse by the fact that If you look at the court as a whole, the vast majority of their clerks come from Ivy League schools, uh, with just a sprinkling from some other places, which means that, you know, in theory, one of the virtues of law clerks is that the judges get exposed to new ideas from new people every year, uh, and uh, their chambers don't get too incestuous. Uh, But when you're, in fact, recruiting your law clerks uh, from a small number of schools, and typically Uh, Supreme Court clerks are recruited through a fairly small network of feeder judges in the courts of appeals who send a disproportionate number of people to the Supreme Court. And those feeder judges tend to hire their clerks uh, based on the recommendations of a relatively small number of Ivy League law professors. So it's pretty incestuous, actually, the way it's really done. And, you know, Justice Thomas does make an effort of trying to sort of broaden his focus in his chambers. uh, But it would be nice if the court as a whole did a little more of that.
0: I suspect that a liberal critic will pick up this broadside and contend that President Obama chose his justices in some cases, not solely on an Ivy League elitist basis. He chose, for example, Justice Sotomayor on the basis of her empathy. He was seeking out a wise Latina, quote unquote, and he'd probably argue that she was a back row kid if we're sticking in that sort of formulation. How would you respond to that critique?
1: when did you go to law school.
0: She did go to an Ivy League law school, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's not, she's not coming from Wayne State. She's not coming from Kansas or Pepperdine. Uh, and, you know, look, law school is designed and has been ever since Christopher Columbus Langdell invented the modern law school in the second half of the 19th century. It's been designed to teach people to, quote, think like a lawyer, unquote. Uh, and law schools, to a better or worse degree, do that. Ivy League schools teach people to think not just like a lawyer, but like a very particular kind of lawyer with the approach of the big Wall Street law firms and D.C. law firms and such. uh, With a certain set of social values, the Ivy League law schools tend to be much more liberal uh, even than law schools in general. Uh, And with, and it's sort of hard to describe, just a sort of clubbiness and clannishness. Uh, that's really only to be found in the, in the top Ivy League law schools. Uh, so I think somebody with that background, uh, it, it's not impossible for them to transcend that, but it's certainly not the way to bet.
0: Walk us through your proposals for remedying this problem.
1: Well, I offer a few, and they range from the extreme to the not-so-extreme. Uh, at the most extreme uh, end, uh, we can amend the Constitution to provide for the election of Supreme Court justices. Now, that would horrify some people, But honestly, it's gotten to the point where our presidential elections turn substantially on who's going to be uh, nominated to the Supreme Court. And even our Senate elections, to no small degree, turn on who's going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. So by not electing Supreme Court justices, at one level, we're sort of corrupting a lot of other races, or at least distracting them. Uh, And second of all, uh, you know, the appointing system, I'm not sure it's any less political uh, it's just not quite as transparent, and it's certainly true that an elected system would require candidates for the Supreme Court to be more sensitive to what non-elite voters think, because those non-elite voters are voters, and I think that would not be such a bad thing. Uh, and many states have elected state Supreme Courts, and although they get criticized, uh, they work fine, and it's not as if you know uh, political appointments are non-political, because they certainly are not. Uh, so I, I, that's one proposal, and I, now that would require a constitutional amendment, and I don't really see that as being very likely to happen. I just put it out more in mind of a thought experiment. Something you could do without changing the Constitution is to appoint non-lawyers to the Supreme Court. There's absolutely nothing in the Supreme Court that suggests uh, at all that members of the Supreme Court have to be people with law degrees or law licenses or even who attended law school. In fact, law school hadn't actually been invented at the time the Constitution was drafted. So. Uh, That would be one answer. And there are many, you know, in colonial times, we had lay judges who weren't lawyers. Uh, There are a number of countries out there in the world that have lay judges on their highest courts right now. Uh, And uh, I understand that in the Reagan era, they actually uh, looked at appointing Thomas Sowell to the Supreme Court uh, and decided that the non-lawyer angle was just going to create too much hassle for them, Uh, though I think that's kind of too bad.
0: If only, yeah, if only we could have been so lucky,
1: (laughs) you know. uh, so I guess he would have had the Anthony Kennedy seat. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I could be forgiven for saying that that would have probably been a better deal. Uh, but certainly that's a possibility. Uh, and then moving down the uh, to an even less extreme approach, uh, I think we should maybe try to pick people other than what Dahlia Lithwick, uh, the legal journalist, refers to as judicial thoroughbreds, which is basically people with the biography of everybody on the court now. These are all people who went to an Ivy League law school, uh, you know, were prestigious appellate clerks or Supreme Court clerks themselves, uh, went through academia and the appellate courts, uh, maybe had a brief period practicing at some, uh, you know, white shoe fancy law firm, but not for too long. Uh, and now they've got this super perfect resume and they haven't said very much too controversial. Uh, and then they're put on the court. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with these people. I mean, they're by definition, they're pretty smart, uh, but they're fairly narrow. And uh, as Dahlia Lithwick pointed out, you know, The, the court that uh, decided Brown had a bunch of people on it who had been politicians, who had been criminal prosecutors, uh, you know, who had been elected officials. And uh, I think that having people on there with that kind of experience wouldn't be so bad. And it can't be the case that there aren't first-rate people who have these backgrounds, first-rate people who didn't go to an Ivy League law school, first-rate people who actually you know, practice law uh, with real clients for an extended period uh, out there. I, there absolutely are. And one other suggestion that I make is that perhaps when you're looking to appoint judges to the court, that we should look at state Supreme Court justices, especially those who've had to run for election in their states, because that experience is likely to broaden their uh, perspective considerably compared to somebody who's always just been appointed to the jobs they've held.
0: Why, based on your study, does the Supreme Court no longer consist of any former politicians? Is that merely a function of... The politicization and and bipolarity of the of the confirmation process at this point. Well, what's your explanation?
1: Well, no, I think uh, there there are two or three things. Well, one is, uh, you know, you have to have this gold plated resume, and relatively few politicians have that gold plated resume. Uh, some do, but the majority of them don't. Uh, secondarily, we're putting people on the court a lot younger now. And it used to be we'd put people on the court when their political career was sort of over. I mean, Earl Warren had been governor of California for two terms, and he uh, had you know, tried to run for president and failed. And then is rumored to have been given the chief ship as part of a deal with Eisenhower, actually, to uh, bring California over to his side at the convention. So that's one thing. But now we, uh, we like to appoint people who are you know, in their early 50s. And if you're a politician in your early fifties, you probably think you've still got a lot of career ahead of you. So you're, that's not really something you're aiming for. And uh, and finally, you know, we, we're just so freaking credentialists nowadays uh, that I think people want that gold-plated resume uh, and and just see that as more important than actual experience. And that's probably true in a lot of other jobs too.
0: In terms of making the argument about election of Supreme Court judges, obviously one thing that we can do is look towards the impact of elected judges at state levels. I guess another point worth considering has to be that at this point, the legislative branch at the federal level punts so many critical decisions to the court that you almost need justices that understand all the political considerations associated with those issues. So in a sense, is that just basically another representation of the warping of our system by progressivism?
1: Oh, I, I would say yes. <laughs> I think that's—there uh, th- is a lot of that. And, you know, um, I'm not actually a fan of James Bradley Thayer, who was a 19th century constitutional theorist, whose view was that courts should he basically said the Supreme Court should almost never overturn laws, even if they thought they were unconstitutional. It should defer to Congress. And I don't agree with that at all, but he did make one excellent point, which was he said— if the court gets in the habit of overturning laws on constitutionality, the likely outcome is that Congress itself will just quit worrying about whether what it passes is constitutional and leave that up to the court. And that certainly has been what's happened.
0: Well, I guess the best that we can hope for is that someday the administrative state really is deconstructed, and then maybe this problem will solve itself.
1: <laughs> well, let's that's, that's hope.
0: <laughs> on that note, the name of the broadside is The Judiciary's Class War, and we've been speaking with its author, Glenn Harwin-Reynolds. Gwen, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.